The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson. Each week on the podcast, we visit a different foodie city and explore the cuisine that makes that place special, whether it be custard tarts in Lisbon, mango beer in Mumbai, or lizard curry in Guatemala. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Wow. I think we have to turn that microphone on, Sam. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there you that go. Was such a nice sounding pour. <laughs> Ed, Ed might have to mix uh, in a big pour for I that think, one. I think he can handle it. Well, hey everybody, welcome to the Winemakers. I'm John Myers, as usual, here and with uh, Bart Hansen and Sam Katuri today, and we are up at Ramey Wines in Healdsburg, which is a beautiful drive this morning, and we're with David Ramey, and. Claire and Alan, right? Got that so far good. I messed up the last one. So anyway, um, I'm going to kind of turn it over to Sam and let this whole thing get started. Bart? No, for me, huh? Yeah. Um, well, we um, came up and um, had a podcast with uh, David Ramey two years ago. Two, I think two years ago, yeah. Yeah, and um, uh, David, uh, I first uh, met David when I was working for the Benzigers and he was doing some consulting um, and I was able to sit in on a lot of those tastings um, and uh, David really helped open my eyes to, um, to w- a lot of things about making wine. Um, uh, done a lot of reading on some of David's um, uh, past successes and and the and the wineries that he's worked with, um, and we had a great conversation that first time. So David, welcome again. Okay, thanks, Brian. Um, and 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 at the time, we had originally talked a little bit about the fact that um, your children were coming into the business. Um, at that point, I think uh, they just kind of hung out and we didn't get them on the mic. Um, so we thought we'd bring them in and let them talk. You guys can all talk about what's going on here at the winery and uh, what exciting things you're working on and just catch up. You know, a lot has happened in the wine business in the past two years, oh, to say yeah. the least. Yeah, well, the big thing, the big change from two years ago when they were just, Claire and Alan were just hanging around, is now they're, they're co-owners of the winery. Okay. Um, as of January 1, they each have a 25 Five percent share of the the winery and the and the vineyard Westside Farms, and then uh, as of June 30, they're going to be 100 percent owners. And then Carla and I will be working for our kids. So I hope that goes okay. <laughs> Do you think they'll be good bosses? <laughs> well, I hope they've had good examples. So. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly diabolical laugh over there on the other side of the table. You know, congratulations on that. That's really a big big deal in your lives it's serious thank you we we appreciate that and we would be daunted except we've been set up so well for so many years this is actually my ninth harvest here working with the family um and i know alan's not far behind since he'd spent a little time overseas but um 
we have a great team. He's the, he's the little, little brother by two years. <laughs> so he's always two years behind his big sister. <laughs> they, they don't let me forget it. And they never will. Right. I, I know. Yeah. I don't know anything about this. I'm an only child. <laughs> well, as somebody who's not an only child and um, also are, you know, maybe a few years behind you guys as far as, like, whatever secession looks like in our in our family, it maybe doesn't sound like it might be as smooth as yours is going. Um, <laughs> one of the things that we've had for my brother and I, it'll be very good that we'll be in very different parts of the business, are in very different parts of the business. Now, how are you guys, I mean, this is, we're jumping in, as usual, the Winemakers Podcast to, like, the meat of the conversation and no, no intro. Um, how are, what is the division of, like, you know, responsibilities and winemaking, selling, growing, How's that, how's that working for you guys? Well, we, we grew up with a very clear division of labor. Um, mom was the admin side, and dad, of course, was winemaking and sales initially. Dad did a lot. Um, but Alan and I hope to take a slightly different model. We, of course, have specialties, um, but we hope to gain value from talking things over, double-checking, sanity checks, um, kind of two heads better than one philosophy in more fields of the business. Yeah, I think that's fair. So yeah, we've, we've um, you know, both of us spend time in the vineyards, both of us, you know, are in the winemaking room every single day, tasting with dad. We've been doing that for years. Uh, both of us have spent a little time on the road. You know, both of us have worked in the cellar. You know, my first job was you know, here's a toothbrush, go clean the whole thing, clean the whole floor. So we, we know how that works. And, uh, and yeah, no, our, our approach was that, gosh, if, if you're, if you're going to run a winery, you know, how do you not, it would be irresponsible not to have an understanding of every kind of basic field and to just divide it up as some families do that didn't work it. The other sort of ad advantage we have is, is we, um, how should we put it? We, we, we don't uh, fight in vineyards, to, to quote the old Mandavi story, for those who know it. Uh, fight indoors. <laughs> Touche. Um, we, we get along pretty well. Uh, I'm, you know, we're very respectful of each other. We, we, we work well. We don't, you know, we don't bicker. We, we agree. When we disagree, we, we bring in other people and get advice from, you know, guy, guys like Pops who, who still can, can impart a little bit of wisdom to us so that uh, there's, a, there's an advantage there. Well, you were brought up well. I mean, that's the idea. You well, Carla, Carla has a lot to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> so who got into growing grapes first? Claire? Um, I have been walking vineyards for six years now, I think, with Daniel Roberts, our very longtime Vic consultant that Dad has known since the 80s, I believe. Um, he's a PhD soil scientist, decades of experience. Um, I did grow up gardening and watching plants, so I think it was somewhat of an accident that I ended up in the vineyard, but um, I have learned more than I could have ever learned in a classroom and essentially manage our grower relations currently. Well, comparing this to a classroom is pretty, it's an interesting concept because it's so different from what it could be. Totally different. <laughs> there's, a, there's a pretty good collection of textbooks in here, though. <laughs> the, the library is impressive. Hey, I spent some time going through the library this morning, and this is a fascinating collection. I mean, it, it drops off about 10 years ago. Yeah, that's true. I but stopped, I'll tell I you, stopped buying wine books about then. <laughs> <laughs> there's some really good stuff. 
like the beginning, the rise and fall of of uh, Robert Parker kind of stories. It's Ellen McCoy's book. Yeah. Really, really fascinating. Yeah, there's a yeah. I I I, I stopped buying wine books when I I realized I wasn't reading them anymore. You know, so. <laughs> I mean, I always use them just as reference um, reference books. Anyway, I I have to say, you know, you kind of scan through them all. At least all of my wine books. Well, what we all didn't know is we needed all those books so that we looked good on Zoom, right? You, you, needed, <laughs> you needed the background. It was <laughs> we were planning. We didn't know it. Norm, normally, that corner is where I set up our Zoom uh, things right <laughs> in this room. So I'm in that chair. I'm just going to take a photo, and so I can do it too. <laughs> right, that'll be your virtual, your virtual background. background. John must. Right. Know a lot about wine. Look at all those books he has. <laughs> and then, and then on the top, the little gnome is—I I, I call him Diogenes. He's with the search uh, lamp. He's looking for an honest man. So <laughs> that definitely needs a photo. <laughs> so Claire, um, and and you guys grew up here in Sonoma County, right? And both both born in Memorial Hospital. Yeah. And um, and Claire, did you go off to college for a little while? Yes, I have an unrelated degree, liberal arts in religion of all things. Okay. Um, but I didn't, unlike Alan, who figured it out in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought maybe interior design. I've always been very aesthetically driven. Uh, it took graduating, coming back here, failing to find a job elsewhere, and then kind of falling into the cellar that things started to click for me. Yeah. Isn't that something how that happens? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad it did. Yeah. <laughs> Claire went to uh, read in... Uh, Portland for four years so okay. so we were up there that, that was interesting we were up there twice a year uh, you know Carl and I and, and sometimes Alan and uh, got to know Portland a little bit yeah so that was that was fun yeah and Alan what about you how did how did this uh, you find yourselves into the vineyards in the in the cellar other than being drug around <laughs> <laughs> well it's mostly that yeah uh, but no yeah I, I thought I would I went to DC in the UK I thought I would be a diplomat I was going down that road and you know, I, I grew up around wine. Luckily, you know, we grew up drinking a lot of great wines just around the dinner table and, and, and figuring that out. But it wasn't really till I went away and, and was actually buying wines on my own, you know. It's, it's funny, you know, most people fall into wine because of uh, they're a waiter for a little while or they, they have some travel abroad experience. And for me, just going abroad, all of a sudden I could buy wine for the first time in my life. And uh, just engaging with it just a little more intellectually. You know, botany, geology, you know, so many different subjects that come together into wine. I'd, I'd, I'd never really gotten that aspect just drinking it. And so I started thinking about that more, uh, started getting more and more interested. I thought I would be a diplomat and travel the world and learn about the, the world. And, you know, this way I still got a chance to travel the world, but with wine instead. And so it, it turned out great. I joined a little tasting group abroad and, and uh, started buying them and came back and just knew right away. So I'd been working harvests and uh, just uh, hit the ball running. First job I've ever had. And and you worked you worked abroad um, at a couple wineries, correct? Could you tell us where those were at? Yeah, I worked at uh, Casablanca in Casablanca in Chile at Veramonte Winery, and oh, then yes. I worked at, uh, at Mayo Camise over in Burgundy for this would have been in 2016, the harvests thereof. So just and, a little bit of time over there. And but. so was Rodrigo um, that's, at Veramonte? That, that's that that's the point. That's when you know I had been thinking. Um, I was trying to help Alan organize this, and, and I was thinking South America rather than Australia. Um, 
and I was originally thinking Argentina or, or maybe Uruguay. We've had trainees from, from Uruguay. And then I remembered Rodrigo, and, I, and so I sent him an email, and that's how, that's how that worked out. Yeah, awesome. so that was a, a Benziger connection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been trying, been working on getting Rodrigo on the podcast. We've been talking to um, Rebecca Weinberg um, and trying to find time to have um, her on the show. And I, I think what I'm trying to get is that we'll go over there and we'll just capture Rodrigo and, and make him sit in front of a microphone. Yeah, we're going to sit down for an hour. Yeah. I, I got to work with Rodrigo for about a year and a half, um, or maybe two years, um, before I left Benziger. Um, and uh, again, those those tastings with you and him, and getting to know his ideas about wine and his background, again, you know, for me, um, helped move move me towards what is my ongoing winemaking style, I guess you would yeah, say. Yeah. You know, no, ever a, evolving, I guess. He's a, he's a great guy. I really yeah. I really like Rodrigo. Yeah. Um, okay, so just a, we have these wonderful wines yeah, in front of us. I've been keep smelling and I'm trying not to taste right. them until we oh. talk about them a little bit. They smell fantastic. Why hold back? Some sense of decorum, I guess? I don't, I don't, no, no, uh, no, no, no decorum here. I was listening to the conversation and didn't want to drink too much yet. Dude, it's 1130. It's pre-lunch time. Let's dig in. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and I love, um, you know, we should talk a little bit about your winemaking style and, and ways that you've driven that, but um, specifically about what we're tasting and also why we're tasting it, because I think that's something that's, that's pretty interesting, and I don't know if everybody gets to do that in, in their winemaking processes. Yeah, it's something that, that I, I, I got from, you know, I basically learned production management from Zelma at CIMI. We worked together for five years right here in Healdsburg uh, in the first half of the 80s. And it was basically the Mandavi production schema. And a lot of times, you know, the analogy I use is the difference. There's, winemaking is different than production management. You know, people think of winemaking and they think, oh, I want to do this or I want to do that. But production management is like, you know, getting it all from point A to point Z the way you want it to be. And it's a little like a little like restaurants, a lot of parallels between restaurants and, and, and wine business. And, you know, there's some chefs that that I mean, it's all about menu design and ingredients and plating, and 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 that's their skill set. But then running a restaurant's a whole different deal, man. You got staffing, you got everything. So one of the things that came from um, Zelma via you know Madavi via Zelma was what we call bottling follow-up. And you guys happen to be here on the day that we're doing bottling follow-up for Richie Vineyard. Woolsey Road Vineyard and Westside Farms, uh, our estate vineyard, and what we do is we open everything we ever made of them, every, and and then we with the Corvin the day before we get uh, analyze everything. We do, we pay a lot of attention to the free and total SO2s. We pay a lot of attention to the CO2 level, and then the color, the absorbency at at uh, 420 is a measure of browning, and and so we can see all that go up, and. Um, what we have in front of us is, is a current release of the Ritchie Vineyard, eight, 2018. We've got one three years later, which is uh, early, older, which is 15. Then we've got a 2010. We have a 2005. And um, they're all, they're all uh, drinking, drinking great. There is a, they're all a, stunning. There is a big shift for us with the 2013 vintage where we switched to DM corks, which we can get into a little bit later. But um, 
the, the wines are aging better and more slowly and more consistently with the DM corks. But these are good examples. This 2010 is, uh, you know, it's 11 years old, and you know, look at the look at the color. Well, um, and then should, a 16-year-old one. We should mention, Dad, that this 2010 happens to be an early trial of DM. It's actually a oh. DM5, so that's why it's showing so that's well. That's <laughs> why it's so good. Okay, no, I hadn't. I, I hadn't caught that. Now you you said something about a cork change. Can yes, you? That's what yeah, but I mean. Yeah, so DM is a, is a French company. It's a technical cork. I, I think is the best term to describe it. And um, you know, if if this were visual, I would I would show you. Uh, um, hang on. He's going to show. It's not visual. <laughs> we'll we'll take a picture and put it on social media. I'll, I'll show you anyway. You know, this is where where corks come from. And, uh, and you can't look at these raw cork plugs, as I call them now, which, as you can see, that's what they are. They're raw cork plugs, right. and think that they have identical structural integrity. They don't. Um, so the DM process, number one, so it's, 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 it's cork granules, and the first thing that happens is the, the, the chamber that they're in is flooded with supercritical carbon dioxide, which is this weird phase, high-pressure uh, low temp, moderate temp, that extracts all the extractables. It's the same. It's the same way that they decaffeinate coffee beans. So I call these decaffeinated corks. Um, and then they put them together. And in the reformulation, and and the the formulation we use now uses beeswax to uh, to bind the granules together. It standardizes what a term of art is called OTR, oxygen transmission rate. And that's one of the problems with raw cork plugs is, is because of that differing structural integrity, it lets different amounts of oxygen through into the wine. Now, red wines doesn't show this because you've got the tannin to kind of absorb that oxygen. And nobody, nobody ages aromatic whites, basically. I mean, you can, but mostly Sauvignon Blanc, you know, I mean, people don't. Um, Chardonnay is the only one because of the Burgundian tradition that people have expectations that it should be good and drinkable at 15 or 20 years of age. And now I can I can say that that ours are they and they they will and the DM plays a, a, a role in that. Not the, it's not the entire story, but it's it's a key aspect. So we want to talk about what else is part of that aging, but to stay on the DM and and the cork part of it for a moment. Um, so, is DM is 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 different than the other technical corks in their process and the fact that they use beeswax and it is a cork material, correct? I mean, it is cork. It's just it's, a matter of how it's manufactured. It's it's either depending if it's weight or volume measure, it's either eighty nine percent or ninety five percent cork. And then the rest is beeswax B binder. Yeah, binder. Yeah. Um, where some of the other technical companies are are not necessarily doing that. They're using something along with cork uh, dust or cork uh, pieces. Correct. That, that could be. A, and and, I'm, uh, and the other the other thing I would say is that um, the the CO two process at this point is is patented. Right. And so the other companies that are offering. TCA-free technical corks are doing that with steam or with alcohol, and it's not as effective as the CO2. The CO2 extracts everything, TCA, TBA, all the extractables. Because I think something that people think about these technical corks are, I mean, recently there's been a number of them that have come out on the market that are quite inexpensive, <laughs> and, um, and, and, 
and I think people think it's the same as DM, and, and DM are definitely more expensive, but they're not the same product. They're no, two different products. No, they're not. No, this yeah, is some, okay. yeah. I, I just, I like to, I like to, I, I guess I'd like to know that I'm not the only one that's understanding it the same <laughs> way. It's a, it's a better mousetrap. Yeah. And then, David, what are your thoughts on, you know, in my time during this, I've looked at a lot of corks and, you know, my early J's um, at Kenwood were a lot of time spent on the bottling line. And we used to get what we thought were really high quality corks. And I think that it seems like you don't see as clean a corks as what you used to see 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Is that true? Um, do you think the quality of the corks has gone down for any reason? Or do you think it's just our memories? That's, I, I can't answer loaded, that. Loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 just, I, ju I just don't know. I mean, um, I mean, we've been using DM since, you know, for six years now, so we don't, we don't use raw cork plugs anymore. Right. Um, raw cork plugs is such a brutal way. Of <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a reasonable assumption based on the increase in cork finish bottles around the world back in the 70s and 80s. I mean, you know, there's, there's, I, I, I think, I don't know, there's 10 times as many brands now as, as there were 20 years ago. And I guess it, that's kind of what I'm getting at. It seems like it's just there's more and more call for corks. Yeah. And so therefore, yeah. just naturally, the amount of really high quality corks has, has gone down. And, yeah. you know, I used to always, I like to say that when I started Kenwood, there were 13 wineries in Sonoma Valley. And now there's over, well over 100 brands, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, the dry, up here in Dry Creek and Russian River, the signs of the maps of wines, they've had to make them very, very tall with all the brands. <laughs> Aldo um, Yarrow did a, an article a little while ago about, I mean, just last, last week or this week, last week, about covering new, new brands in, in Napa Valley alone. And I think he listed 25 of them. And I hadn't heard of right. any of them. Right. And it had been like, <laughs> it had only been like a few years since he had updated that list. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pretty wild. Um, what's the customer response been like in the last six years with, with the cork change? Because I think that that's the place where, especially from the marketing standpoint, you know, the, the, romanticized version of, uh, ideal of a raw cork plug um, uh, as a wine stopper and just what that looks like in fine wine and then how people respond with the with Did the you want to this? yeah I, I can take it we, we we were concerned about that at the outset we made the change for wine quality and we basically told the the sales side of the company deal with it <laughs> And um, and so we weren't sure if we'd have you know a little pushback. We suspected we might though, and we were surprised that we did not. We were expecting a few phone calls or people pushing back. Most people, particularly consumers, can't can't even tell the difference and can't tell that it's not a you know the old-fashioned type of cork, a, a cork plug. And 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 it's my favorite story on this is I remember I, I brought some consumer you know visitors tasting the wines, and I I was talking about the new corks and I pointed it out to them and I pointed right at our bottles where we had all the corks and I was pointed right at them 
and they started looking all over the room where, where, where the new corks were, because to them, that was just the old corks. They couldn't tell the difference. So I think we, we were surprised that it's, it's, it's coming through. I think you see more, more of them in the marketplace, and they're just doing a good job of, of, of just making them look like they used to. So it's, we, we've been okay, and we've actually encouraged other people to do it. We've done, as my dad's pointed out, years of technical research, and some of our, our friends in the business have then asked to look at it, and then they end up adopting DM2 because they just get pissed off at having that special bottle, and, uh, you know, darn, it's not, it's not tasting good. So some of, the most, okay. some of the most positive reactions have come from sommeliers and wine buyers who knowledgeable ones because they know they're not going to get any cork bottles. They're not going to have to deal with, with the cork bottle, put it up on the shelf, give it back to the distributor, get the credit. That's, that's all history. Yeah, I mean, I all these wines are delicious. I can't say that the 2005, um, I, I can't say there's any element of the cork difference for me. Um, uh, you know, have you know a, a natural cork having an effect, but I think that just speaks to the quality of the wines more than than that. Um, but David, I know yeah. that, I'm sorry, Sam, yeah, one ahead. sec. David, I know before you have, you know, you've been very vocal where you've opened up bottles and you've been upset because a wine that you're expecting to be very good has had cork failure. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it was corked. That just means that the cork didn't do its job. Yeah, the variations in OTR, oxygen transmission rate. And, and again, red wine, you don't see it as much because the tannin absorbs those variations in oxygen, the extra oxygen. Nobody ages the, the aromatic whites. Chardonnay is the one, I, it took me a while to realize this, but Chardonnay is the one that shows it. Yeah. And so, and, and I realize that we would sometimes show library wines like this, like this 10 or this 05, and I'd have to have backup bottles. Uh, you know, like if I was a big, big tasting, I remember one in particular was Sonoma County Vintners and there were 60 people and I was showing, uh, you know, a, a 10 year old Chardonnay and, and I think I opened, uh, you know, 12 bottles to get, you know, six good ones of that, you know, and that just, that just fries me. And, 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 and in particular, I remember before we kind of figured this out, like I remember when, when the critics would come, Bob Parker or Galoni, and I'd always show the current releases and then like a 10-year-old wine. And, and I remember one time in particular, the, the wine, I hadn't paid enough attention. The 10-year-old Chardonnay that I showed Galoni was, you know, was a little more tired than it should have been. And, and he noted it, and, and, and the, the implication was it, it was the wine, but it wasn't the wine. It was the cork. A, a, a favorite story, um, Charlie Olkin of Connoisseur's Guide told me once, we were talking about this, and, and he told me that Louis Martini, um, Mike's dad, so the middle, middle Martini, had, um, had told him, there are no good old bottles. There are only good old corks. <laughs> there you go. I mean, especially when you get into really old wine, the quality, you know, the condition of the cork is, is everything with whether that's going to yeah. be a successful yeah. opening or not. Cork and storage. Cork and storage, right. E equally important. And you know, tasting through these these four, um, to me, obviously, the, the five is, is beautiful. It, there's, it's a much more noticeable color difference between the, the and it's not that there's anything, like, like I said, the five is great. The ten tastes much younger than it is. And that, I mean, that's, you look at the three of them, 18, 15, 10, 
and the 10 is much more like the 15 and the 18 than it is the 5. And that's because um, this was this this bottle was an experiment that we were doing in the five-year trial period. This was a DM cork, and it, it, normally it wouldn't be, but in this right. in this case it is, and yeah. that's why. And so here you have like an, an 11-year-old bottle uh, with a DM cork that's like it's doesn't, it's doesn't taste 11 years old. No, no not at all. And 10 was. Ten was a hot vintage. Mm. Ten was pretty cool. No, cool, cool yeah, vintage. Ten was cool and yeah. and cloudy. Nine, nine was nine was cool. Ten was cooler, and eleven, 11 was, was cold. Rain, was rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Eleven was the year of of rain and rain and rot. Right. Did you used to carry a card around in your wallet about? French vintages and which ones were rated. No, yeah, no, I've never done that. <laughs> Certainly so, seen people pull those out before. It's kind of fun. Yeah. You know, old farmers and winemakers, that card is just in their head. Right. right. <laughs> and and we sit around the table and we have to agree because none of us could remember anyway. I, my dad, you know, my dad will talk about a rainstorm in, you know, 83. And you're like, all right, well, maybe he's telling the truth. <laughs> we have no idea. <laughs> So um, let's see. What else should we talk about here? So, so in the process, I know Sam's sorry. got a bunch yeah, of I questions. Got tons of questions. Um, <laughs> from this, as you go into bottling, what you said the the nineteen Chardonnays, you're, you're tasting these in preparation yeah. of the bottling of the nineteen. What do these tell you, and how does that change what you think you're going to do with this bottling next week or whenever it is? So the, so the principal thing that we look at, and we have all these numbers right here, is the, is the, the SO2. What, what SO2 should we bottle it at? And remember, and it's unfortunate when, you know, Roger Bolton and I came to Davis at the same time, 1976, and, you know, Roger's a great guy, chemical engineer, but... Um, you know, he, he at the time, the old timers only ran total SO2s. The old, you know, you, you may remember some, but you didn't look at freeze. That's true. And Roger came out and said, "No, no, total. It's the free that's physiologically active. You got it. That's the only." And so now you have a whole generation of winemakers who, who don't even run totals. They right. don't look at the total. They just do free. Right. However, because I once translated a French paper on this. Free and total, free and bound, free and bound combined is total. Okay, so free and bound, and the, the sulfur binds to tannins in wine, it binds to sugars in wine, it binds, to, you know. So the free and bound are in an equilibrium. There's a third category of loosely bound SO2. There's tightly bound and loosely bound. And as the free decays, oxidizes to sulfate, which it just does naturally, that's partly why we use it, um, it's replenished by that loosely bound. And so the importance, so if you, and I know this from practical experience too, if you have, if you bottle your Chardonnay or wine at 30 parts free, but you have only 50 parts total, that 30 is much less stable than if you had 100 parts total at, at bottling. And so we look at both the free and the total and at their decay over time, and then that gives us an idea how the wine is aging and should we bottle at a higher or lower level of, of SO2. 
and and um, and then the other thing we look at is CO2 because we control with our white wines we control the CO2 very precisely and if 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 it gets a little too high the wine can be a little springy uh, which is at odds can be at odds with the the red wineness of of Chardonnay I tell people Chardonnay is the red wine of whites because of barrel fermentation and malolactic makes it the most compelling interesting complex white wine in the world every every aromatic white is is finally kind of simple compared with you know real burgundian style chardonnay um so anyway that's but if 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 it's too low the 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 co2 then the wine lacks um life and and liveliness and freshness so do you have an ideal number uh right now our our uh our current free SO2 at bottling in our Chardonnays is 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 right around 40, but we can we reconsider it every year, um, and then our our number for CO2 is is at 1450, uh, which is a little higher than some other people, um, but it, I think it and it's very important um, as, as the wine ages too. It's another factor that keeps the freshness in the wine as it gets to be 10 years old. Right. Yeah, it, uh, w- and and for managing CO two, um, it's it's more about um, not oxidizing the wine than trying to actually add CO two back, right? It's all about about managing it while it's in barrels and and getting to the bottling line. So, with the way. Uh, one of the things that Selma and I pioneered back in the early 80s was was By brown. By the way, we need to do a yeah, Zelma. Yeah, was, <laughs> was brown juice, and so uh, we don't protect the juice from oxygenation. We let the the natural polyphenol oxidase enzymes do their work and oxidize the tannins. After that, once it's wine, it never sees oxygen. To make that happen in any transfer, you use inert gas. Right. You have a choice of inert gas. You could use argon, you could use nitrogen, you could use CO2. We use CO2 throughout. And and these wines are only moved ever three times in their life. Right. You know? I mean they come they go once out of barrels to the to the blend tank prior to, uh, six weeks prior to bottling. Yep. And then and then they're they're racked to the bottling tank, yep. like a day before bottling, and then they're moved pumped to to bottle, that's it. So, but each of those times we use CO2 to blanket, you know, the bottle on the bottling line, everything. So that's how we manage that. Yeah, and I think what I was trying to also get from you on that is the fact of how little these wines are touched, and and oh. that is something very important to your winemaking style. Is um, our philosophy is just that? It's you know these are unfiltered wines. These are unfiltered. Um, yeah, and you know. As someone who's tried to make some unfiltered white wines, I, th- th- this <laughs> motivates me. Um, <laughs> but yet I still haven't been able to get there, as you'll see when the bottle of wine that I gave you guys. <laughs> well, it's again, a witness test, though. You know, having having really essentially been uh, trained up in France, um, you know, I remember '79. A, a lot of us were at Davis at the same time. Um, I mean, Randall Graham, John Konsgaard, David Graves and Dick Ward of Saintsbury, um, Kathy Corzin, uh, Heidi Peterson, um, 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, we talked about uh, Mark Lyon and Sebastiani, um, and uh, I remember talking with Ed Killian, who was a longtime Suverine winemaker, and he taught, I followed him in Corneo's lab doing ester research. Ed taught me how to use a gas chromatograph. Uh, I was talking with him, and 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 I I, I thought we should be comparing California wines to, to French wines. And he, and he said, no, why? They're apples and oranges. And, and I said, well, you know, every wine buyer in the East Coast of the United States is comparing them every day of the week. Um, and I was the only one that, that went overseas to work in France. So I got exposed to, um, and even them, over there, they're not as traditional, I think, now as they, as they were, although some, you know, going back to the old ways. But so I talk about that because we, we use native yeast, we use native bacteria, uh, we don't filter, we don't own a filter. But one of the key differences to getting Chardonnay, this white wine, this clear, so that you can bottle it unfiltered, is fining. And that's another thing that's unfortunate that Bob Parker, bless his soul, great guy, but one of, he has some things to answer for, and one of them is linking unfined and unfiltered as, you know, conjoined at the hip. And, and so there's a whole generation of younger winemakers who haven't worked in the old world um, who just say, oh yeah, our wines are unfined and unfiltered. Well, fining with the traditional agents is how you get no, no, two things. Number one, a wine is clear that you can bottle without filtration, but number two, because the agents are proteins for the most part. In, in red wine, it's egg white, and in white wine, it's isinglass and, and casein or milk. Um, and those are proteins, and so they have a positive charge, and the tannins in wine have a negative charge. And so little electrostatic bonding, and in addition to clarifying the wine, they smooth the palate, they give a silky texture to the palate. And so this, this, this finding, which is again something that I got trained up not only in France, but from Zelma, by Zelma, with, from Mondavi, which was in the 60s and 70s using French techniques to make wine in California, part of their success. A lot of, a lot of young kids are unexposed to that. And, and so that's, you know, if you can bottle clear white wine unfined, but you're gonna have enormous lease losses. Um, I mean, just you're gonna you're, you're gonna you're gonna easily lose five gallons of a barrel, you know, in in the bottom. Right. You know, it's, it's, so it's a, it's a problem. But um, so anyway, that's how we do that. And Which and I think up, that's, ten, that's basically a ten percent loss, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, it's yeah. a ten percent loss. Just oh, for yeah. those yeah. scoring at home. Yeah, it between be, that and evaporation, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. yeah. yeah and and was, I and I think the other thing that goes along with this is the how much more process has to be go with the other way. I mean, I can think of the hours and hours of filtering with a Velo filter and putting diatomaceous earth in it and pumping it through and mixing the mixing of the diatomaceous earth with the wine and then going into a tank only to two days later take that same wine and push it through pads. And then the last filtration, of course, uh, the bottling line of a 0.45 micron filter, which is really, really <laughs> tiny. And just all that processing, yeah. and and every time that happens, you're stripping something. You're, you're, you're taking something out of the wine. A and little... David, I've I've been and, I've and been guilty of saying the problem, the the thing people don't understand about finding is that 
and this is excessive fining, is that when you fine something, you strip something from the wine also, but you're trying to strip something that's a negative. Um, if you want to elaborate on that at all, I, well, I don't I mean, know where I was going with that. One example would be my, my red wine mentor, Jean-Claude Barraway, from the Muex organization in, in contrasting egg white and gelatin with uh, as a fining agent for red wines would, would say that uh, egg white is, is gentle, it respects the wine, whereas, whereas gelatin is, is brusque, um, it's aggressive, it's harsh. And so the, there's different, you know, yeah, there's different, and, and don't even, I mean, I, I don't even consider, I mean, we never use artificial fining agents like PVPP or something like that, you know, that's a polyvinyl polyperolidone. Uh, I have experience with it going back, you know, to the semi rosé of, of Cabernet, but um, yeah. I, I, I have probably uh, needed as much fining as you could probably get. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I have memories of that, like clogging my nostrils and oh. you know, breathing it. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the, sure the, we the were. Rose, the rosé or the, or the fining agents? The fining agents. <laughs> No, but you, I mean, you know, all those things. You're you're right. I mean, you know the, the you talked about the DE and and the mixing, um, you know, vat and, and dumping it in. We call it, we call those the, the the Italian oxidizer. You know, <laughs> exactly <laughs> it. I mean, it would just sit there, and and you know, we would run that machine eight hours a day, nine hours a day. You know, and 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 forcing the wine through it, and you know, and and then it was all a matter of how good of an operator you were. You know, some people, they oh, would yeah. throw more D at it because it seemed like it needed more. I mean, it was all just, I, I can remember like trying to take a class on filtration and realize that there was no classes on filtration. Yeah. I mean, maybe now there's more information, maybe. but <laughs> maybe. not yeah. much. Anyway. So can we sort of finish the conversation on the winemaking style for the Chardonnay? Um, because you're bottling 19 right now. Most people are trying to be sold out of their 19 white wine right now. Um, and your current release is the 18. And I, not to, not, I, I love that I'm selling 18 white wines also, but um, you're in barrel for yeah, 18 so that's, months? No, you're, 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 you're right on that, um, Sam. So, so 20 months on lease in barrel. So we put the juice in the barrel, starts to ferment maybe five days or a week later. When it's dry, sugar's gone, we top it up, we just leave it in the barrel, and um, stays on that yeast lees. That's very important, that yeast lees so, does so much texturally for the wine. Um, you know, the people who have reacted to over-oaked Chardonnay by making un-oaked Chardonnay, the, the, one of the mistakes, I think, is the, oh, well, then we're going to ferment it in a, in a tank, as in stainless steel. But, there's a difference, there's a factor that gets left out and that is the size of the container. And the shape, right? It's the small, the <laughs> small containers have the intimacy of Lee's contact. So if we were to make an un-oak Chardonnay, it would be fermented with native yeast, full mallow, but in stainless steel drums, uh, with the batonnage, with the whole thing. And that would be an optimal un-oak Chardonnay. Right. But when you put it in a tank, you can't, that the, the yeast, they get down to the bottom and it, it's like a form of a layer of sludge like peanut butter. You can't pick it up. You just, you can't, you know, the goose, the propeller mixer, you know, a little bit doesn't. So, yeah, so the, the, the size of the container is important um, with the least, please. 
Do you do any? There's no like you're not doing any of that stainless for blending or anything. You're just, we, it's all. We have a hundred uh, stainless steel drums in in our mix that you know. So we use them. Um, we use them. Uh, sometimes we got two concrete eggs, uh, so we use those. So, but um, mostly, we've ad- the 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 stainless steel chardonnay to me is the wrong answer to the question of what do you do about overrub chardonnay. The the right answer is to use less new oak. So right. like, so our our, our village <laughs> chardonnay is only like 10% new. 10 or 15% new now, and the single vineyard's about 20%. And, you know, it's a little like, you know, the the the, the answer to over-salted food is not no salt. <laughs> it's less salt. <laughs> that, that's, I think, I think that sums that part of it up. I mean, you know, there are varieties. Chardonnay is one of them. Cabernet is another one where the right amount of new oak... It's, it's part adds of, to the wine as opposed to overpowering. It, it's the part wine, of the right? package. It's part of the package. But but you know uh, there are insensitive winemakers just as there are insensitive chefs that uh, can use uh, too much of any particular ingredient. I mean I love saffron, but it doesn't mean that you know. <laughs> and it costs about as much as a new barrel. So. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Al. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say. Well, with the new oak. We use it, you know, as my dad pointed out, up as low as 10% for, for, you know, Appalachian Shards. But we'll go up to 100% in, in, in some wines. But to your point, Sam, it has, to, it has to add to the wine rather than just be some oaky flavor that just lands on top of it. And uh, one of our favorite games is take the person who visits the winery with a lot of opinions about oak and then begins to lecture us about oak usage and then the response is just serve them one of those wines that has 100% oak and ask them what percentage of no oak it is and I have I've done this question so many times because it's so much fun to do and and I've never gotten the correct answer most people will say 10%, 20%, some as high as 50 you know, some have said 0%. But that's, those are the answers we get when we ask people with opinions what they think. So we'll, we'll use it and we'll, on the whole range, but it, it has to match the wine and the terroir and the, and the grapes still come first. And vintage and all these other factors that go into that. Well, but there's some, there's some tricks. Um, and with, with this when I start taking notes. <laughs> Ready for the next hour? <laughs> with with red wine, of course, your your barrel selection is is key. There are good barrels and there are crappy barrels, and you know you can smell and taste the difference. Um, but there's three other factors that help integrate the oak, um, and how our our top cabernets are uh, and and our Rogers Creek Syrah are 100% new oak, but you can't tell. First is what. Um, again, I learned in Bordeaux, is called barreling hot. So when we drain after about three weeks on the skins, um, and then we go to barrels the next day, that, that was drained at about 88 degrees. And so the next day, it's still, you know, it's still about 82 degrees. It doesn't cool off that much overnight. Barreling hot integrates the oak. Okay, that's number one. Number two, um, the mallow in barrels integrates the oak because the, the, the bacteria metabolize some of the um, oak compounds like ferulic acid. And then number three, um, it took me a long time to come to this, but in 06 we experimented 
um, aging on the lees. So what lees, there's not as much lees as in a Chardonnay barrel, but um, there's a, there's, you know, the next day there's a bunch of lees, yeast lees, and, and we mix that up and it goes to barrels. So those three things help integrate the oak uh, so that it's, 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 it's internalized part of the structure, not an overlay. That's, so, go ahead, Alan. That's one of the kind of exciting things, you know, stepping in here with, with my sister to, to start the operation is we've got this, you know, great history with our dad doing so many experiments over the years, sort of like you described. I mean, that, some of the things you just talked about were pr pretty radical in their, in their day. And, I mean, one, one of them was that red yeast stirring, I mean, or lee stirring, pardon me, where, you know, one about, gosh, some years ago we did a, a Cabernet experiment with no lees, lees unstirred and lees stirred and then we didn't just try the wine when it was new as a lot of other winemakers might might do we bottled it and aged it for 10 years and tasted it after 10 years so when when you hear my dad talking about sort of all this sort of technical mumbo jumbo <laughs> whatever it might be that i just want to impart to those who care that that th there's a lot of scientific rigor that is that is that is pretty unique here, thanks to our dad and what he's done over the years. That we definitely want to keep going as we as Claire and I step in. Well, so maybe here's kind of a loaded question, and maybe you don't want to say it in front of your dad. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> what do you uh, you know? How are you going to carry that tradition on? What are sort of like some of the experiments that you want to try as um, you know the autonomy grows, or how, however that is, or or are there experiments that you know, he has a list of experiments that he wants to do that he's handing to you as the as the rain sort of transfer here. Well, what's so fun is we, we do experiments every year, and Cameron Fry, our VP of winemaking, has been with us since 2002, so he's a steady hand, and Lydia Cummins, our associate winemaker since 08, and we all work collaboratively on agreeing on what experiments we want to fit into any given harvest, um, and then follow them for as many years as they need to be followed and Alan and I don't have plans to change that particular model good answer yeah <laughs> yeah no it's 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 definitely something we want to push I mean and but again per the team you know comment Claire was making I mean my first gosh it might have been my second or third harvest when I was I was still working and cleaning floors in the cellar I had heard my dad talking about how we we add as many stems to the to the Syrah tank for you know, for, for, for aging the wine with stems for a little bit. Um, and we, uh, and we did about 25% and I suggested, how about, how about a higher percentage? How about 50? And so we did a trial right there. And so that's sort of how, how we've done it. There's, there's experiments we want to do in future. Um, you know, at this year I'm going to, I was going to do it last year, but this year I'm going to do a hand harvesting de-stem operation that that's not, not as often done on Pinot, that's going to take a lot of time. So that's one thing we're going to be, be, be going forward to. And I, I keep looking for new ideas, but it's, it's sort of an interesting challenge to, to do experiments now because the wine industry is at a point of tension where for, for, you know, the last hundreds of years, you know, what's pushed it forward has been innovation and technological advancement. You know, you hear the stories of stainless steel tanks in Sonoma and Napa in the 60s being this big technological innovation and so many other things that we've done. And, and our generation, Sam, yours and, yours and mine, is, is talking about, well, 
what do we remove? Let's go back and make more natural wines. Let's start stripping it away. So it, we're at sort of this, this tension point and people are experimenting and some people are going back and saying, let's recreate wines that, you know, they used to make 200 years ago. And then you've got other people that are saying, well, let's make this new highly advanced yeast that might adapt in some way, or let's create this new genetic variation in vines. So th there's, there's experimentation that's going in, in both directions, and, and we, we, we pay attention to all of it. I mean, we, we're always looking at what's the new research and what's coming out and paying attention to it, even if we don't necessarily do it. But we also, you know, pay attention to those old books. We've got a great library. The Hillsburg Library has a wine department, and they were talking about ancient Greek wines and how they used to add olive oil to them as they would ship them across to Egypt. So uh, being, being a young, young, woke kid like myself, I said, I want to try it. So I, <laughs> I, I did it. I did it in my kitchen. I added olive oil. I had a control and experimental trials. And, and guess what? It, it, it sucked. It was horrible. And so, but that's the difference. We're, I think people look at a winery like you us and they need think... need better olive oil. I, I know. That, there's the key. Yeah, you might know something about that. Um, that's the key difference, I think. Some people look at a winery like us and they say, oh, you've got an old man like Dave Ramey. He's been making wines for the ever. They're not interested in what's new. And, and, and I think that's dead wrong. The, the difference is, is that if we do an experiment that's a little, you know, off the edges and, 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 and if it doesn't taste good, we're not going to make it. We're just going to bury it ourselves and drink it and say that's gross, that's not saleable. So I'd say that's kind of the difference between us and some other wineries. Well, and there's also something to be said for the the long play in these experiments, to do something and put it in bottle and wait 10 years before you really know the the results. And that's something that is inherently in the wine business, uh, and you guys are there, what it has to be multi-generational pursuits to figure these things out and then to take something that you tried 10 years ago and apply that to the next 10 years of, of winemaking and, and how that informs things. And, you know, that's, there's, there's, there's freedom in that, right, to be able to do that and, and not be, you know, uh, beholden to a corporate board or something like that where you can, you can play those things a little bit, right? Especially with vineyard, as you, as you know, with your family's work. I mean, you know, rootstock experimentation <laughs> takes a long time. Yeah. Clonal experimentation, spacing, trellising, everything in a vineyard is way slower than in the winery. <laughs> right. um, so one thing to touch base here on a little bit is um, I think a lot of people know Ramey, uh, Dave Ramey and Ramey Sellers with Chardonnay, Cabernet, kind of, you know, without a doubt. Um, you also make Pinot Noir here. Um, we, uh, Sam and I, John, were of course Syrah lovers, um, and we always love your Syrah. I'm sure Sam has some questions about Viognier and um, Syrah for you. Or is this when we hit them up on air without any background on um, oh, of course. donating to the auction lot? Yeah. I, think <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not where I was going, but I appreciate it. That's where you're going. We're going now. Thanks so much. Yeah. been great talking. Thanks for coming. Nice, yeah. nice to be here. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to hear a little bit about your venture into Pinot Noir because um, it's it's a fairly new, um, I mean, I'm sure, David, you worked for Pino, with Pinot over your entire career, but for Ramey Sellers, it's fairly new, isn't it? Now, actually, I haven't worked with Pinot for my entire career, so in fact, it never made it uh, professionally until the, from the Platt Vineyard 2012, um, and then Lou Platt died, um, so, so we, we didn't continue with that vineyard. Um, but when we bought Westside Farms, which is our 75-acre ranch on Westside Road, it's, it's, a, it's across the street from William Sellium, it's a mile south of Rocchioli. 
you can't do that and rough, not rough neighborhood. <laughs> you can lock your car around there, right? You you cannot do that and and not make a Russian River Valley Pinot Noir. So so we started and um, and and you know so yeah a lot of people don't think of us yet as as, as Pinot Noir, but gradually I, I think I think they will. I, I will share a little inside dope that. Um, so there's, on the 75 acres, there's 42 acres of grapevine, there's 32 Chardonnay and 10 and a half Pinot Noir. Now the Pinot Noir was under lease to Toomey or to Silver Oak, you know, and um, they planted it starting in 2000. And um, they, um, they informed us just early this year that, um, that they were, this was going to be their last year. That, so, so that estate Pinot reverts to us with the 2022 harvest. And so we're really excited about that. We already know some changes we're going to do. We're going to convert from, from Cordon to Cane over a three-year period. And, um, and that's like, yeah. So yeah, Pinot Noir is definitely part of our future. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, let's see. Go ahead, Sam. I know you got a Syrah question, right? <laughs> are, are you're still, you're still getting, uh, the Syrah from, uh, Rogers Creek. Rogers Creek. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which Except is in 2020. Okay. <laughs> Which is uh, above Sonoma. You know, it's on the ridge between Sonoma and Petaluma. Sonoma. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right, David. Correct it's, me. It's oh, it's 800 feet. It's you go to Stage Gulch Road, and then you just before if you're heading toward Napa, just before the dump, you there's a there's a, <laughs> actually it's a really romantic vineyard. No, saying. actually, yeah, right right kidding. at was what was the dump. dump and, right. And, and, yeah. You you turn in there, and then you go. It's now tra- it's just a transportation station now. <laughs> Way the f up the hill. Yeah. He, he he knows how to make wine, not to sell it. <laughs> you're looking at San Francisco. You can see all the buildings distinctly. You're you're below downtown Petaluma. Right. Um. And and so it's right in the the far eastern edge of what's now the Petaluma Gap. Right. And so it is very strongly windy. Our block is about the highest block that we have. Uh, we, we've been there since the beginning. I, I chose the clones to go on the 110R rootstock, and uh, there's a tree there's a there's a there's a tree barrier to kind of block our our block from that. And then we put in we put in 5% Fionnier at the at the lower slope um, to you know you know the. Truth of the matter is, I was I was kind of involved in planting three Syrah vineyards once I realized that that we could make good Syrah in California, and I didn't know about Viognier. And I thought, well, we've got to put in, and we'll find out, and we can always tea butter it if it doesn't work. But uh, when I finally had enough to do an experiment, so instead of five percent, it was one tank with none, one tank with ten percent. You know, it, oddly, the the Viognier doesn't make it. I I don't particularly get floral or spicy or Viognier-like character, it's more Syrah-like. It's more what I know as Syrah, and the, the non-Viognier tank was a more of a monolithic red wine. It had less of the exotic, savory character of, of Syrah that I appreciate. Yeah. The grapes do like the uh, fog down there, don't they? Oh, grapes in general like the fog. I mean, even even Napa Cabernet, um, you get more fog in the south end, Oak Knoll. You get more fog in the north end, Calistoga. People don't think of that. They don't realize, but it's just over from Santa Rosa, you know. Um, and, and yeah, that th- this whole, it's not, it, the whole coastal California is, is the, the 
the reason we can make the wines we do is because of the Pacific Fog Bank. And, it, and so you go from, from Anderson Valley to what's now Petaluma Gap, the Estero Americano, to um, Monterey and the Santa Lucia Highlands, to even, even Paso, the Templeton Gap, a little bit on the south side, and then down to the Santa Rita Hills. Every single place along the coast, the, the fog intrusion, that cold air, cold nights, warm days, that's, 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 Californ- that's what makes California grapes and, and wine so great. And, and so then we've got to talk about climate change a little bit and, um, uh, you know, any thoughts or emotions about that? And I, I do have thoughts. And, and, and one is, uh, <laughs> one is um, uh, uh, frustration with, uh, I, and I, I always pick on a, a, a mythical Canadian climatologist uh, making prognostications. And it's always couched in terms of Napa. Oh, in 25 years, it'll be too hot in Napa to, to grow Cabernet, you know, something like that. And what they don't, they, what they leave out is the, is the fog, is the, is the Pacific edge, you know. And, and so I would couch, does that mean we don't see the effects of, of, of warming? No, but I would characterize it this way. And I think you probably guys know this too. We don't have as cold a winters as we used to have. We don't have the frost, or as much, or as much fog as we, what we've not, had. Not so much either. Yeah, and so, but I don't see. I don't think that um, that the the summers are hotter, but I think the winters aren't as right. cold. Right. So bud break is earlier, and so and dormancy is shorter. Yeah, and and, and so. Um, it, we, we used it used to be whites were always September and reds were always October and and I mean with especially then you add in drought which is probably a side effect of, of this climate change too and so so now we're harvesting October uh, August 10 instead of September 10 and you know but but the bud break was was earlier so I don't think if it were a hot summer, the growing season would be shorter and hotter. It would be like it would be like uh, Washington State, you know, or or Lake County. You'd have a short, hot growing season, or the Sierra foothills. I don't think that's the case. I think the growing season is the same, but it's shifted earlier, which in a way has some advantages. We don't we rarely have to face rain, you know, during harvest anymore. I mean, so that's how I see it. It's not a simple thing of oh, hot weather. It's, the grapes are going to suffer. We are seeing changes, but not what people always think. So, so what, you know, in your career, and maybe even just in the last 10 or 15 years, um, other than picking earlier on the calendar, maybe the same amount of time, you know, growing season, what are the changes that you're seeing in, in Cabernet and Chardonnay as far as flavor profiles, as far as what you work in the cellars, demanding are those things starting to shift? You know, uh, Sam, it's a little—it's a little—that's a little hard to say because there've been so many other changes. If you—if we go back, I mean, one time I was having lunch with Andy Beckstoffer, and he, he passed around a a a, a a postcard. It was an aerial photograph of Napa Valley during during harvest, and it was in the '60s, and it was a sea of red vines. So so when people talk about 
you know, wines in the 70s and, and 80s that were, oh, they were 12.5% alcohol. Well, yeah, they were all lethal they virus, were all dude. shut down. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were lucky if you got 24 bricks. That's a huge change, just the clean plant materials, you know. So, so, so it's hard to answer your question given these all the other changes that are, you know, that, that have happened in the last 40 years that I've been in the industry. How about the uh, drought? Let's go there. Um, how's that affecting, uh, and what do you see as an impact this year and then on? I can, I can tell you, I'll just chip in because there's a story that our, our VIT consultant, Daniel Roberts, uh, uh, deals with a vineyard on the top of Mount Veter, Cabernet Vineyard, that we used to get the Cabernet from, and then we started shrinking our Napa Cab program. But they're, they're dependent on, they don't have groundwater, they're dependent on winter rains to fill the reservoir. They're not, Claire, you correct me here, are they, they're, they, they're only going to harvest one block this year. They left the fruit. Something like that, yeah. They one, cut way back. One block out of, maybe maybe they got five blocks, I don't remember exactly. But there's there's an extreme example. I mean, because they, they, they don't have the water. Now, for us, um, at Westside Farms, uh, we're below the confluence of Dry Creek and, and the, into the Russian River, which comes from Warm Springs Dam. So below that confluence, the, the, honestly, I don't see the, the, the river level changing much. And, and our wells have standing water at, at five feet. You know, it just, we're in a class one water area. So yeah. it just depends on where you are. The, the growers in, in, in Alexander Valley, north of, north of Healdsburg, the, this is going to be a tough year for them. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, I never really thought about that that area below uh, Dry Creek. Have you have you been up to Lake Sonoma to look at the level of? I, I see Kent Porter's life? photographs on on uh, on Facebook you, you a know lot. What? The, the photos don't do it justice. Really? I mean, you really should drive up and, uh, and take a look at it. Okay. It, it's pretty shocking. Yeah. Pretty right. shocking. Right. Um, I mean, there's still a whole bunch of water in that lake, um, but it's. Pretty amazing. So. You know who used to own all that is is uh, the Mortsons' yeah. uh, grandfather or great grandfather or yeah. something. Yeah. He, he he didn't get that good a deal from the government. I don't. Yeah, I, I I think <laughs> when um, I, I worked with Clay, I think he used to comment about that every once in a while. Yeah. And his father, we used to get some grapes from that. So, wow, this has been awesome. Um, Ms. Weiser just like tasting great as they change in the yeah. in the glass in yes, front of yes, us. Yeah. Um, you know, can we do one teaser for something for a future time when we come back? Um, I believe you mentioned to me something about you're going to start making a Sonoma County Cabernet. Yeah, that's true. And we, we didn't cover that today, but next time we can we can move into that. But yeah, we're 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 we're, we're shrinking at our, our Napa Cabernet footprint and and experimenting with Knights Valley, Alexander Valley, Rockpile, Cooley Ranch, which is which will be our first one beyond Rockpile. It's yeah. a, it's a um, Tom Klein, uh, Rodney Strong development and um, the old you know Crawford Cooley uh, right, family yeah. property, right. way up you know 2,000 feet. It's it's you know, it's, it's, it's killer. And, um, and the reason why I want to bring it up is because Sam and I, being you know Sonoma Countyans. Um, we, we like to hear that. You know? I, <laughs> I, you know, I'm on the board of directors of Sonoma County Vintners. Uh, we are landowners in Russian River Valley. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so I, I'm, and I've lived in Sonoma County since, you know, I mean, 40, 42 years now. I mean, it's, uh, 
it's one of the greatest places to live in the world, and I hope we can keep it. Um, one of the things is we're we're being uh, agland is being encroached upon by rural residential, and um, the people a lot of some people retire to wine country and then decide there's too many wineries, you know? Right. And, what do you mean uh, you're going to drive tractors by my house in the middle of the night every, <laughs> every two weeks all summer long? What's that big <laughs> propeller out there in the middle of that vineyard? Why does it for? sound like there's a helicopter in the vineyard in yeah. cold nights? Yeah, yeah. And so... And I love my vineyard view, but stop driving that tractor around. <laughs> I mean, so so I'm involved in a, in a couple of efforts to, to maintain agricultural viability, but, you know, and, and, and people unfortunately love to hate the wine industry and I mean some people do in 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 the Sonoma County now people who don't understand it but the only thing that keeps Sonoma County in agriculture is the value-added proposition of wine because otherwise all ag is a commodity crop and and if and if it's just a commodity crop it's going to turn into houses but the value-added proposition of wine makes makes it viable for multi-generational farmers like the Martinellis and the Mortsons and the Duttons, uh, you know, Katuris to do continue on and do their work. And uh, not a, not a group of people whose my last name falls into their sentences very often, but I'll take it. <laughs> Appreciate it. San Giacomo's, you know. I mean, uh, it's just uh, yeah. we got a great thing going here if if we can keep it. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, Alan, uh, well, anything? You should, you should plug, like, things that you have for sale. Yeah. Uh, what's going on with the winery, the tasting room. Any, any. How to, how to get here, how to buy it. Yeah, talk about, yeah, you're a wine club. Um, can people come visit? Um, you know, any, anything that's coming up that you want to talk about, please. And, <laughs> and please shout out the name of the, uh, website, the address of the website and any social media stuff. Oh sure, yeah. Well, well, what's coming up is is the world's opening back up, so we can actually have a, a tasting room that's inside and open. I know, knock on wood. Um, but no, it's it's been good. Uh, we finally brought on a new new great guy in the tasting room, so we got we got a good team coming back. We uh yeah, it's uh, RamyWine.com. That's where you'll find all the the current new releases, and you can just go on there and see you know a few, a few goofy videos we have, and then uh <laughs> you can call and book a tasting that way. We've got a we've got a wine club, but if you pop on by. We can we can tell you all about it, but yeah, our approach is pretty pretty relaxed. You just you know, it's 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 less of the classic on the vineyard beauty beautyscape and more of the so you want to be nerdy kind of a you know come here. It's just like we had a conversation. I think that now. might be some of our listener base. It could well be. Yeah, it's just a conversation like this. We just talk about wine. We go through the releases and and, ha- and have a nice time and kind of give you an honest conversation. That's our that's our spiel. So what are you selling right now? What are you excited about selling soon on, on the lineup? Uh, well, we, we always have you know a little Chardonnay, a little Syrah, a little Pinot, and a little Cab. So we uh well you know that's uh a few of the things are are selling out pretty quick. We we got a couple hundred point scores from wine enthusiasts uh, just recently, so those wines are going quickly. Um, and luckily that that brings a lot more folks out. You know, it's funny they tasted just as good before they got the hundred points, but funny how that uh, <laughs> probably better. Funny how that changes things. So uh, so yeah, so we've got a few of those wines hanging around the tasting room, uh, Claire. We're also finally, after 10 years, pulling the 11 vintage back into the tasting room and showing it oh, side cool. by side with the 15. So if wow. you come in soon, you can try 15 Annum, our best blend of the vintage, next to 11 Annum, and people are enjoying that. Yeah. My experience with the 11s is as sort of critically panned as they were, <laughs> have been some of the most elegantly aging red wines in Northern California and 
a generation, right? Since, Precisely. Since 98. <laughs> right, which was also yeah. a year also that got panned because yeah. of rain. Yeah. 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 Cold year got panned. They're yeah. still very young, and they will age beautifully and yeah. for another 10 to 15 years, but we're excited to show them to people and kind of get past the negative associations. Right. That's cool. Um, Follow David Ramey on uh, Twitter. Twitter. Um, <laughs> he's, he's a lot of fun, um, and and he's there. You can you you can you can tell him uh, tell him how great his wines are. I don't I don't tweet much, but I I uh, I respond. Right. Um, <laughs> Good responses. Yeah. I felt like you know I mean probably had met you somewhere along the line in in our you were you my my colleague Paul. Said that at some point you were selling barrels to my uncle, or was he out of his mind? Nope. Was a different Dave Ramey. Okay, because yeah. <laughs> he, he was confused. Because he also was saying something about. Well, when he said that when when, oh, that when Dave Ramey left left Ridge, and I said that wrong, no, Dave, wrong Dave Ramey. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Although although I, I do aspire to uh, uh, Paul Draper's uh, step into Paul Draper's shoes. I, <laughs> I don't as know a, as the Eminence Grease of uh, you know. I, I, I was listening to your group of um, people that you were at Davis with, and I was envisioning this winemakers podcast roundtable where we just provide the equipment and we have you gather some of your old colleagues and we put the microphone down and say, we'll be back in an hour. Probably <laughs> open a bottle or two and then I'll leave. <laughs> we, used to, we used to taste together, you know, continue on the tasting groups for a number of years, but then, you know, you get married, you got kids, you know, you start your own businesses and, you know, you start traveling and stuff. So anyway, yeah, we're not as, as, as much as in touch as, as, um, as we used to be. I know, Alan, you and I are on the same... Um, tasting group list. I haven't participated in any of them with um, the folks from Now. Oh yeah, um, Doug Nall. Yeah, from, uh, from Doug's, yeah, and Andrew Nall. Uh, Andrew's yeah. Um, yeah. group. I um, know that we've shown up on those emails. I haven't been able to make them it's somehow. Hard. It's hard, you know. You guys down in Sonoma. Man, it's like we're in a whole other part of the. That's a long <laughs> commute, you know. Yeah. Well, this has been great. Thank you very much well, let's, to let's, all of you. Let's plug the thing, though. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so, and actually, is this going to come out by May 22nd? Yes. Also, first of all, I think that most of the shows, I've said it was May 23rd, and I think it's May 22nd, at least in the email that we got. So we are uh, the Hospice to Roan event, um, which was supposed to be April 2020, got postponed, obviously. Then they were going to try and do it in April 2021. That's not happening. Didn't happen. It's now May. Uh, so it's it's... April 2022 down in Paso, but to sort of help the whole organization survive until then, they're doing a virtual live auction on May 22nd, uh, and we put together an auction lot that is all Rhone varieties, obviously, uh, for people who've been on the show. So if, if you guys would donate a, a bottle or two of the Syrah, um, oh. add you to the list, we'd, Done we'd deal. love Done. that. Um, and then, so that auction, we're now probably getting close to six plus cases with this auction lot uh it's auction lot number 13 it's the 13th item so if you're watching at home save your money um <laughs> because we we want to be no there's some pretty well our goal, some pretty autumn awesome items so maybe yeah. we won't be the the highest one well, but i mean one of them there. is a tasting with jeb dunnick um a virtual tasting with jeb dunnick which you know it'd be great if he was could right. do it together but um, and then the Saxum tasting, yeah, the Saxum. or the Saxum thing. But I, I think we can raise more money than the Saxum I, a lot. Bold statement, <laughs> but I'll take it. Uh, so well, that's, yeah, well, May well, 22nd, online virtual live auction for hospital. We will, uh, hashtag we will Karen Yan. Uh, that, that'll, that'll, that'll be a magnum of uh, 
Rogers Creek from us. Awesome. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank that's you very awesome. much. Thank and you very we'll, much. Uh, we'll make sure that's high high on the list for sure. So appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Appreciate the support. And uh, So, yeah, if you're out there listening at home, be ready May 22nd with your credit card. And actually, you can just watch it too, apparently. I was reading the, yeah. reading the email they sent out this morning. You can just watch if you want to, but it's better. Yeah. It's one of the things you want to participate in. There's an, uh, there's yeah. an after party also, I guess. Uh, I, I, I guess. A virtual <laughs> after party? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. It's 2021. We'll do anything online. <laughs> <laughs> so you go ahead and wrap it up, Sam. Uh, what else do we need to do? Again, thank th- thank you guys for hosting us here. It's nice to get out on the road again a little bit with the show. The wines are fantastic. Definitely check out Ramey Sellers. Uh, doing things the right way, old ways and new ways. Uh, so, And probably the next time we're back, David will be on vacation. And uh, <laughs> and these guys will, will look less more stressed out, than the, less relaxed than they do right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly mo- most right. likely. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Cool. It was a pleasure yep. to be on. Thanks okay. so much. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, subscribe, uh, review. That's how the show gets out there. Uh, back previous episodes. Right? This is episode 191. So we have 190 other episodes that are available at uh, winemakerspod.com. Uh, follow us there, Instagram, social media. We'll see you next week. <laughs>